Well, good morning, Oak Grove. Man, I love listening to you guys sing. That is a blessing to my heart. Also, I don't know if you know that the God has gifted us in a very unique way with the with the praise team that we have and every week all the different people we use and I'm just I'm so grateful for them and how God's using them to lead us in worship as well as like hopefully you'll see it in a minute but every week Brandon knows what text I'm preaching and he spends time in prayer and study thinking about the context to draw our hearts in a direction just like he did this morning, and, and hopefully that becomes very, very evident. Um, let's, let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing, and then we'll dive right in. God you're, God, you're so gracious to us. We love you. God, we need you to illuminate our eyes to what's true. We need your spirit to convict our hearts of what's not right in us. Convict us to, to the way that you want us to live, and the way that you want us to walk, and the way you want us to go. And God, I pray that our church, our individual lives would be a blessing and gracious in your sight. Lord, we love you so much. We pray that you would answer the prayer of the sinner. Lord, we believe, help our unbelief. Lord, we love you. Let us love you more. In Jesus' name, amen. So we'll be in uh, 1 Peter. I forgot to do the pastor trick and mark my page. <laughs> Um, so we'll be in 1 Peter 2.21, if you want to go ahead and turn there. And we are continuing our series, Living for What Lasts, because we know what lasts are the things that we contribute to the kingdom of God. This morning, what we're going to do is we're going to see Jesus as our example. This is the third part in what we've been looking at in, in chapter 2, um, 13 through, through 25, honoring God and suffering. So let's remember the context because I think we might be in danger of taking this out of context because it's such beautiful gospel message here. It's such a beautiful gospel message. So let's just take a second and rewind. Verses 13 through 17 what, what Peter's doing is, is he's calling all Christians to submit. And remember, this is the one that kind of had a sour taste in our mouth. This was a call to submit to, to the government, even an unjust government. And the, 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 the next one was verses 18 through 20, where he's speaking to Christian slaves, calling them to submit to their masters, even unjust masters. And, and what was the why behind all of it? so that we would be found as faithful witnesses. So then where we're looking at this morning is Peter is going to give us the picture of Christ as our example in how we are to, to suffer under unjust persecution. And uh, for the last couple of months, we've been, we've been talking about this all the way since Ruth and a little bit in the Galatians. God does not waste our suffering. If he does, that means uh, he's, a, he's lying in Romans when he says he's working all things out for, for our good or the good of those who love him. 
God's not wasting any of our suffering. We can entrust ourselves to him who judges justly. And we can trust that he's working all these things out for our good and for his glory. So let's, let's look at our text. Or I'm sorry, let's look at what's true. Jesus died for our sins so that we could have his righteousness. That's, that's going to be the main thing that we see from our text this morning, that D Jesus died for our sins so that we could have his righteousness. And then what do we do with this that is drawn from the text? There's a lot of things we can do with this, but drawn from the passage that we're in. As followers of Christ, we are to walk as Jesus walked. And that's a hard thing. So let's look at, let's, let's dive right in, okay? Starting in verse 21. For this, you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sin in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now return to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. May the Lord add blessing to the reading of his word. So our first point that we're going to see starts in verse 21 this morning. And we're going to see Christ as our example. Verse 21 says that for this you've been called. You'll reckon it like this word called has come up a lot in the book, right? The, the, the very first section of the book, it tells us that we are a called out people. And then it tells us we've been called out by God to, to, to live a certain way. So it tells us that we've been called out, called out by God, but not just called out by God called out to live for him, to live for his kingdom, and to live for his glory. So, look at verse 21 again. For this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. So what have we been called to do? Peter tells us that we've been called to walk in the example of Christ that we would walk in his steps. <coughs> Excuse me. The word example here, it's interesting. I missed it the first few times I read through this and the first few times that I was looking. But uh, then I saw this in a commentary, and the literal translation for the word example is riding under. Writing under, not riding under, like riding a horse, but writing under. And that commentator said that this is, uh, school teachers would use this word example, the writing under, um, for children who, who would then trace over letters in the alphabet, in the Hebrew alphabet, to learn how to write the letters correctly. School children, they would trace the pattern of the word, and, you know, as these images of words and letters would emerge, there was that writing underneath that they traced. You know, it's funny, we still use these things today. Right now, my, my little girl's learning how to write the alphabet. 
And we use the same thing. You, you'll remember it from elementary school. You know, you had those broken dots um, that you would follow and make the letters. That's exactly what it's talking about. And as we would trace that example, that's how we learn to, to write, right? Jesus' steps are our example. Jesus' steps for the believer are to be the underwriting that we are to follow. His, his steps are to be the thing that we trace our lives around. In, in, the, in the Christian life, like when we were children following the lines, we are to follow the steps of Christ as we are being formed and molded into the image of Jesus. Now, these steps are sometimes a lot of fun. When you follow in the steps of Christ, you're going to find a life of joy, a life of peace, a life of happiness. But kind of the theme of the book of Peter is you're also going to find suffering. And Peter is trying to help us understand what to do with this suffering. But you need to understand all the suffering that you experience, if it's not, remember like we looked at last week, suffering for, for evil, that's not a gracious thing in the sight of God. But when we suffer for doing good, that's a gracious thing in the sight of God. We are doing this in service of his kingdom. You, know, I mean, you might know the name Tim Keller, Timothy Keller. He's one of my favorite theologians. He was a pastor in New York. He recently passed away with cancer. And Tim, for years, wrote deeply thinking about the idea of suffering. But after his diagnosis, um, I read an a article he wrote. He was talking about having to, to put all these uh, ethereal writings to practice. And he began to write extensively and think deeply again in a different way about suffering and death. And if you're dealing with a diagnosis like this, I would suggest you look his name up. His name's Timothy Keller. Um, he, I, think, I think you'll find his work as a ministry to you. But Jordan showed me this quote this week um, from Timothy Keller, and it says this. God will either give us what we ask or give us what we would have asked if we'd known everything he knows. Let me say that again. That's, God will either give us what we ask or give us what we would have asked if we knew everything he knows. Jesus tells us about God that he's, the Father is a loving Father. If you ask him for a fish, he's not going to give you a snake. If you ask him for a piece of bread, he's not going to give you a stone. He's, he's a good Father. So if you understood all that God understands, you would ask, and this is a hard thing to say when we think about suffering, you would ask for everything exactly like it's happened to you. This goes for suffering as well. Think about this. Would, you, would your suffering be worth it if God used it to lead even one person to himself? Would your suffering be worth it if God used your suffering to draw one person from, from 
hell into heaven for them to, to, to see your life and make that uh, decision? Or would your suffering be worth it if your terminal diagnosis or your, your child's terminal diagnosis was what God used to make your niece who is far from, from him or your nephew who's far from him start considering the things of the Lord. That being the thing that starts sparking those thoughts. In the book of Acts, God tells his disciples to go out to the ends of the world in Acts 1-8 after the Holy Spirit comes and to make disciples. Well, the Holy Spirit comes, 3,000 people accept Jesus, and it's a kumbaya in Jerusalem. Things are going great. The Holy Spirit's there. People are getting healed. It's awesome. And they didn't do what God told them to do. So in Acts 8.1, you see a great persecution come. And the persecution was so great, it drove those believers out of Jerusalem into these different parts of the world. And as we see them, them go out, what do we see happen? All of a sudden, there is an explosive work of Jesus through the world. That's what's going on there. What was the spark? Suffering. Paul. Paul wrote most of the New Testament. The suffering of Stephen was the spark on Paul's life. Here's a, a harder one. Would your suffering be worth it if God used it not to lead anyone to Jesus. Would your suffering be worth it if God just used your suffering to make it to where you grew in your love and trust and dependence on him? Because that's more often than not how he uses it. And we have to trust that God is good and God is true to his word because what does he say? He works out all things. Some of the things? All things for the good of those who love him. Peter goes on to give an example of how Christ suffered and how we are to trace our lives around his. So look at verses 22 through 23. We're going to see the righteous suffering of Christ. We're going to look at our text again. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he reviled, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Peter, if you've got that Bible that has that middle column, mine doesn't, but some of your Bibles have that middle, middle column that give you all the Old Testament references. This is going to be lit up like a Christmas tree right here. So Peter is just not writing out of his head. Peter is using Old Testament scripture to make his case. He's, he's done it all throughout this book already. And the primary text that Peter is using right here for the suffering that he's given us the application for already is Isaiah 53, the man of sorrow, or maybe your Bible entitles it the suffering servant. And um, Isaiah 53 says this, 
53.9. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Now, your Bible says he did not sin, but Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, chose to take the liberty to change that word from no violence to sin. Peter gets that liberty because he's writing under the authority of the Holy Spirit, who also wrote Isaiah. <laughs> so we'll give him that. So in verse 22, what we're seeing is the sinlessness of Jesus. Not only that, that there's no deceit in his mouth. We're seeing that Christ was perfect in not only his actions, but also in his speech. Verse 22 says, he committed no sin. Look, look. Look back at uh, last week's passage, and you're going to remember that Paul has already made the, the case, if you, Paul, Peter, um, if you're suffering for doing evil, that's one thing. God's not pleased with that. But if you suffer for doing good, that thing is precious. That thing is gracious. That thing will be rewarded by God. Jesus never sinned. Jesus never did anything wrong. Jesus on his, in his life was morally perfect. So whenever he did receive that unjust suffering, that was a precious thing in the sight of God. That was a thing he, he's rewarded for. And we know he was rewarded for it. Think about uh, Philippians 2, whenever we get this beautiful picture of who Christ is and, and what Christ is doing, that Jesus is the God-man in the flesh. He submits himself to the Father. He goes and allows himself to die and to be tortured. But whenever he gets to heaven, he's given a, a new name, a name above all other names. That in the end, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That is the reward. He gets the reward of us being his children. But going back to Jesus being morally perfect, God twice in the New Testament speaks and affirms the work of Christ. Uh, you might remember this. The first one is at his baptism. He says, you know, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And one just cool aside about that. So the, the, the Jews understood the, the Old Testament in three parts. The law, the prophets, and the poetry. Okay, three parts. Or they, they would call it wisdom. That... What, what God says from, from, from what God says there, it's, it's quotes from the law, the prophets, and the wisdom. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. He's, he's declaring from above that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. He's the one that you're looking for. He's morally perfect. Then, I love the Mount of Transfiguration. This one's kind of weird. You know, um, he goes there with, with, with Peter and John and James, and he, there he meets Moses and, and God's, and, and I forget off the top of my head who the other one was, and, and I think Elijah. And God speaks, and he says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. God is affirming Jesus. What's crazy is that those who Christ submitted to in his death also had no evidence of his wrongdoing. Look at the screen. You'll see in Matthew 26, 59. Now the chief priests 
and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. The Jews that sought to kill Jesus, the Sanhedrin, the ones who were over the Jews, they found nothing worthy of death that Jesus had done. So then they hand them over to Pilate. Pilate, he is the Roman government in that area. He himself, um, as the governor, he interrogated Jesus, and he founded no, he founded, that's not a word, he found, that's my East Texan coming out, he founded, he found no, no wrong in him. And he wanted to release him. He did. And so Pilate, he goes before the, the, the Jews in Matthew 27, 23, and he, he's, he says, look, I'll release one of these two guys, Barabbas or Jesus. This guy, this Jesus has done no wrong. He, it, he actually says, what evil has this man done? And they just cry louder and louder. So finally, Pilate washes his hands of the situation and he delivers Jesus over to be executed. Jesus was sinless in the eyes of the Jews. He was sinless in the Jewish court. He was sinless in above in their, their national court with the Romans, yet he was still condemned to die. Sinful men convicted a sinless man, Jesus Christ, to die for the, for the crimes that he did not commit. But look at the screen again, 1 John 3, 5. I love this passage. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. In him there is no sin. Jesus was able to take our sins away because in him was no sin. He had committed no wrong. Jesus, not only that, he's God in the flesh. God's life, his lifeblood was poured out in order to purchase your salvation. Not by anything you've done, but totally on the basis of what he's done for you. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, he's offering you grace. The second part of verse 22 goes on to point out the perfection of Christ in his speech. He said, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Jesus was like a lamb led to the slaughter. This again is pointing to Jesus being the perfect lamb of God. Not only was he perfect in his conduct, but he's perfect in his speech. Verse 23 lets us know how perfect he was in his, in his speech. Because he refused to retaliate, returning uh, reviling for reviling and returning threats for his suffering. He doesn't do this. Verse 23 says, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. When suffering for Christ, we have to walk in the example of Christ. We have to trace the steps of Christ. And we have to choose to refuse to retaliate by making threats or speaking uh, harshly and, and um, reviling someone. What does this revile mean? It's this verbal abuse. I think there's, let me be clear. You're taking a court. Speak up for yourself. Hire somebody to speak up for you. You're taking before you speak up for yourself. I'm not saying don't speak up for yourself. 
Jesus even says, you know, I've not done anything. I, I, in front, I did all the things that you're saying in front of you, and you didn't accuse me there. Like, he did speak up for himself, but he didn't, he didn't threaten. But I want to take a second and say this. This, this revile means to verbally abuse. I think for a believer, any sort of verbal abuse is out of the question for a follower of Christ. Let's, let's take and make it a little more um, applicable to who we are. Right now, I, I don't think this is different than any other time in history. I don't, I don't think where we find ourselves. And what we do is we, we, we find tribes. We find uh, in, the, in our niche of Christianity, right? We find people who believe specifically like we believe to worship in a way, which is great. That's fine. But does that mean that this other person's our enemy who does it differently? No. We just, we are doing something we believe is right. So we get in these tribes around our our specific way we view the scriptures, even though these other people are, are still claiming by faith alone. Uh, then we, let's zoom it out. We get in our tribes around our politics. We get in tribes around our views of, um, I mean, just about anything. And what we are so quick to do is we are quick to name that other person as an enemy. Because they see the world differently than you do, doesn't make them an enemy. And even though they, their actions prove them to be an enemy, I think we all have to refuse to label them as an enemy. We'll get to that more here in a few minutes. When Jesus was being physically assaulted, he did not threaten. Think about what kind of threats Jesus could have given. This guy was in charge of angel armies. This guy, by his breath, spoke galaxies into existence. He could have made a threat, but he allowed himself to be beaten whipped and nailed to a tree. Isaiah 53, again, this is the text that Peter is referencing here. It says this. He was, in verse 7, he was oppressed and was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, like a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. As we reflect on the suffering of Jesus, we need to consider these things. Had he not submitted to the, to the Father, had he fought back, which was his right, he would not have purchased salvation for us. God uses our suffering in ways that we could never imagine. Imagine while he's being uh, verbally abused by the Sanhedrin, if he returned that same abuse. Imagine if while he was being beaten, he commanded their hearts to stop or he called the angels to rescue him. Without the wounds of Christ, we would not find the healing of Christ. 
When you find yourself in suffering, do not let your mouth or your actions be the cause of your suffering. And if you're suffering unjustly for God, don't let your mouth or your actions be fuel, be fuel for their hate and for their fury. How, we, how can we love our enemies when they're causing our suffering? How can we fulfill the command of Jesus to love our enemies? Understand, that's a command, that's not an option. He commands us to love our enemies. He commands us to forgive. How is that even possible? How are we to bless our enemies? I find what Miroslav Volf, that's a word, that's a name, huh? That's a whole mouthful of a name, Miroslav Volf. I, I like what he says. Only those who refuse to be defined by their enemies can bless them. Only those who refuse to be defined by their enemies can bless their enemies. So let's not be so quick to name our enemies and to... The way that we respond to these people says lots about who Jesus is. It says a lot about who Jesus is. So if we slander and malign and stand up and, and dress down someone, that's returning revile. Or for many people, the, the keyboard warrior, they do it in the safety of their bedroom or on their phone. I don't believe there's any space in the kingdom for those actions. Now, let me be clear also. I do think we can stand up for ourselves. I do think we can call a spade a spade. I do think we can speak truth. But the reviling and the threats, those steps don't trace Jesus' steps. Look at Romans 5, 10 with me. Jesus didn't define us as enemies. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Walking in the pattern of Christ is a hard road, but walking in that pattern brings life. Now, the Bible's just telling us that like it is. Before Christ, if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, if you're in here this morning and you don't know Jesus, know this. You are an enemy to God. You are a part of the rebellion, and he will squash you. That's the facts of the text. But Jesus... But God, being full of love and mercy, sent his son while we were yet his enemies to die for us. He refused to define us as his enemies. He loved us despite us making war against him in our actions by rejecting the Father. Jesus died for us while we were enemies that he would reconcile us to the Father. The Great Commission is God sending you to his enemies to share the good news in order to advance his kingdom. Your uncle, your brother, your sister, the guy in Israel, the guy in Palestine, 
that does not believe in God, it doesn't matter where they are geographically located, those people are enemies to God. And the Great Commission is to go to the enemies of God and tell them about the good news of God so that they would become sons and daughters of the king. But if we're so worried about labeling enemies and labeling worldviews that we don't love them and go to them, we're not going to be a part of advancing the kingdom by making disciples. How was Christ able to do all this? I mean, that's a tall order that we're being given in this text to walk and to trace this way. Verse 22, or 23. Because he trusted the Father. Look, look at what your text says. But he continued entrusting himself to him, that's God, who judges justly. Jesus was able to endure because he trusted God. He knew that ultimately God's justice will prevail. Christ trusted the Father in all of his suffering, and he knew that in the end his suffering would be rewarded. For you too, you can entrust God with your suffering. You don't have to be your, your own righteous warrior. You have a righteous warrior that will fight for you. You can entrust your soul to him that we know at least in the last days, if you're not rewarded now, which there are real present rewards, but if you're not rewarded now for your suffering, in the last days you will be. We can entrust ourselves. Your suffering too will be rewarded. But also, God judging justly is a terrifying truth. The justice of God requires punishment for sin. The just reward or the just punishment for sin is death in hell. Some people want to make hell seem like it's the fun place where all the cool kids go. And it's just going to be like this eternal party. That's just a lie perpetuated by Satan to try to take the sting out a little bit. Jesus is so concerned about hell. Did you know that Jesus talks way more, not a little bit more, way more about hell than he does heaven? Jesus created it. He understands it. And he's warning us about what's to come. This is how Jesus describes hell. In Luke 16, 23, Jesus just describes hell as a place of eternal torment. Luke 16, 30, he describes hell and he says, and he will cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In, the place, in, in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In Mark 9, 43, Jesus says, it is a place of unquenchable fire. In Matthew 13, 42, Jesus explains at length the anguish of hell. In Luke 16, 19, you remember the story of the rich man and Lazarus? We learned some things about hell there. there. Lazarus gets to go to heaven. The rich man got his good portion on earth, and then he goes to hell because he does not put his faith in God. And while in hell, it talks about the torment, and it also talks about him not being able to go back and warn his brothers. 
because that's not a place he wants them to be. Hell is an eternal place. On that day of judgment, Jesus tells us that he will separate on his right and his left. Those who follow him are going to be on his right, and those who didn't follow him will be on his left. And this is what he says in Luke 16, 41. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the hellfire prepared for the devil and his angels. Why does Jesus talk so much about hell? He's warning us. If you're here today, I want you to understand that that is the just payment for your sin because you've sinned and rebelled against a holy and just God. And if you're here today and you believe in Jesus, hell's quite the motivator. When we look out, we have to see everyone we come in contact with at your school, in your family, in the places of business you go, in the job that you do. We know hell is real. We know they have an eternal destiny. And we know there's a good God who has made a way. And we know that he has the power to save. We can entrust ourselves to a God who judges justly. Look now at verses 24 through 25. And we're going to see the power of Christ on the cross. Here we get the substitution of Christ on the cross for our sins. He himself, that's Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your soul. The power of the cross brought life from death. The power of the cross brought righteousness from unrighteousness. The power of the cross brought from death healing. Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree. And if you're here this morning and you don't know who this Jesus is, I want you to understand he's not just a good teacher. He's just not a moral example. He's, he's not just a healer. He's God in the flesh. Jesus is God, and he's full of grace and truth. And Jesus brought life into the world through his death, burial, and resurrection. This God-man, Jesus Christ, he bore our sins on his body. And the reason that Jesus could take your sin, and Jesus actually gives you his righteousness. So he takes all those who are in Christ, who believe, he takes our sin away from us, in the eyes of God, when God sees me, he does not see me in my sin, and he robes us, he gives us his righteousness. And when God sees us, he does not see us in Christ in our sins, but he's substituted his righteousness for ours. He's given us all his merit before God. And when God judges us, God does not judge us by the things that we've done, but by the things that Jesus has done. And on that day, he will look at us and he will say, well done, good and faithful servant, because you know who did well? Jesus. God himself bore our sins in his body. 
God suffered on the cross for our sins. Peter says he died on the tree. That's just a euphemism for the cross. In the Old Testament, it talks about the one who dies on the tree. Galatians 3.13 gives us the New Testament view of that. Paul says this. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He substituted himself for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Your sin debt has already been paid. Jesus, he substituted his life for yours. But the payment to be applied to you requires something. Faith. It requires you to, to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and to repent of your sins. Jesus bore your sin on the cross that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. Once you put your faith and your trust in Jesus, what you're going to find, you're going to find freedom from sin. You're going to find freedom from bondage and addiction. And you're going to find for the first time the capacity to live for righteousness because when you believe in Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes in you and transforms you and makes you a new creation. Now, we still have the capacity to sin, but now for the first time, we have the capacity to follow the Father. But I want you to understand this. Jesus did not satisfy your sin debt for the purpose of fire insurance. What I mean by that, there, there's this easy believism that's happened in church for so long that says, just, just pray a prayer and you don't have to go to hell. Jesus paid your debt so that you could live for him. If, you're, if you believed you're saved because you prayed a prayer, but don't have a desire to live for Jesus, you don't have a desire to walk as Jesus walked, you don't have a desire to walk away from your sin. You don't have a desire to advance his kingdom. In other words, you don't have a desire to live for righteousness. I would say, I don't think you're saved. The Bible tells you to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because we know what awaits. We're saved by faith alone in Christ alone, but not by works. But the Bible tells us there's a way to know. There's a way that you get a evidence to if you're a believer or not. You'll see it in the way you live. You'll see it by your works. Look at James 2.26. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also is faith apart from works dead. You have to have faith that works. You have to have faith that works. Faith that moves you to action. The works, for the love of everything holy, understand, hear me, the works don't save you. But the faith is the evidence that, that, that or the works are the faith. I'll get there in a minute. The works are the evidence of the faith inside of you. Striving to live for righteousness doesn't save you. But when you put your faith in Jesus and you're transformed, you will know, you will desire, you'll find this faith that works. 
You will live out your faith and you'll follow King Jesus. Saving faith in Christ transforms and separates us from sin as if we were dead to it. Galatians 2.20 says this, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's ignorant. It's ignorant to say you're going to receive the kingdom of God, but you're not going to live for the kingdom. It's ignorant to say that you're going to inherit the kingdom of God and not follow the king of the kingdom. That makes you in opposition to God. That makes you a rebel to the kingdom. That makes you a rebel to the king. Not a follower of the king. The powerful, transformative work of Jesus on the cross moves us from being citizens of darkness to citizens of light, from citizens of this world to citizens of the kingdom of God. And then, now as citizens of, kingdom, of the kingdom of God, we are to give our lives in advancing and expanding God's kingdom work here on earth by making disciples at home, at work, with the people we hang out with. I want you to see two more things just real quick. The cross of Christ brings not only transformation, but healing. Verse 24, by his wounds, you've been healed. If you don't know Isaiah 52 and 53, go home and read it for your quiet time this week. It's, it's beautiful, it's prophetic of who this Messiah will be and what he will do. Isaiah 53, 5 is what's being referenced here by Peter, and this is what it says. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. The blood of Jesus brought atonement for your sins. It brought healing for your sins. By, by his wounds, we've been healed. And I want you to see one last thing about Jesus in verse 25. This king who is so kind to die for us, he doesn't just save us and leave us on our own. Verse 25, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your soul. This king is kind. This king is gentle. This king knows his sheep and he goes after the one that strays. This king is patient. This king is watching over your soul. And if you put your faith and your trust in Jesus today, you're no longer a straying sheep to be devoured by wolves. You're, you are a sheep of the great shepherd, the good shepherd who will protect you and who is willing to give his life for you. If you want to know more about what it means to follow Christ, I'm going to be over here and I'd love to have that conversation with you. But we're going to pray and we're going to give a time of response.